Hey, Sylvie, Sylvie, Sylvie. Savage, I cannot handle you right now. <laughs> what? What? Why? What do you mean? You're so excited, but you're also trying to get better audio quality by sitting under a blue velvet blanket. <laughs> and we've tried so many takes because we actually have super important news to share with our listeners. So let's... Just just try to get it out. Try to get it out. All right. Okay. Yes. So I am I am talking very loud today. I'm very excited because today Wistia is adding support for podcasting into our platform. What? That's right. Podcast hosting, analytics on how people are listening to your podcast, ties and everything else in your marketing stack, the ability to make channels of audio, um, capture email addresses, all the stuff you know and love Wistia for with video, we're bringing to podcasts. It's a big deal. It's the first time we're ever moving beyond video. And obviously, I'm so ex- I'm excited enough to cover myself in a blanket to uh, to get this audio sounding so good. Amazing. That's super exciting. Listeners can obviously find out more on the website. But before they do, let's jump into this episode with Lulu. What do you think you're going to do when we when we start talking to her? I'm going to try to be cool, bro. I'm going to try to be cool, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. So I'm going to lean on you a little bit. I'm not sure what it's going to look like when I'm nervous. I either like ramble or I get like very silent. Just so, the two extremes. You did the two, two extremes. extremes. Yeah. <laughs> two extremes. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Um, Should we do this? You ready? Let me just two more deep breaths in through the nose out through the mouth. Here we go. Okay, let's do it. Hello, and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage, and I'm joined by podcast expert extraordinaire, Sylvie LeBeau. How are you, Sylvie? (laughs) I'm good. I'm nervous. You're nervous. I'm talking too loud. (laughs) Yeah, you are out of control. I (laughs) I know we've had a rhythm for our intro, Savage, but I am, I'm like, my palms are sweaty. I feel like I'm about to just... I feel like it's a man overboard situation right now. <laughs> we are we are deviating from all things, all podcast rules that I have implemented. I'm throwing the rule book out the window because we have a guest that I am wildly excited about, who you know from way back when. Yes, Lulu Wong. Yes, the filmmaker, the the, the writer and director of The Farewell, a movie that has t- apparently touched you to such a degree that you're at a loss for words and... When you're talking, <laughs> you're screaming. <laughs> I'm, I, there's so many emotions. But yes, Lulu Wong, turns out you guys are friends from, you know, your early 20s. Wild. Um, she also happens to be one of my favorite directors. Yeah. So, you know, lucky me. Lucky you. Lucky me. Yes. Lucky us. Lucky us. Lucky Lulu. Yeah. Uh, I am rambling like an idiot, and yeah. that's okay. That's, that's good. okay. All good. I I noticed uh, there are some people in the background of <laughs> of your screen tending to things, um, fixing some things. Okay. Yes, I am. I am in the basement of the house of Martha's Vineyard, and uh, my family oh, we're has. Back here. They have not read my sign properly, and uh, that said, don't come down here. Uh, when talking too loud is happening and they think that it's just, they can just come. They think they can just walk. You know what? Do you know what your biggest misstep was? What? You needed a bigger sign that said, 
I'm recording with Lulu Wong. Back the bleep <laughs> up. Well, next time I will do that. But back to the guest. Uh, you and I made a farewell pact. We watched it again recently. And uh, what were your thoughts? Give me the setup. Yes, I, I watched the farewell again on Monday night um, with my family, and everyone was very touched and laughed and cried. And so, farewell was a movie that came out in 2019. It's an incredible film about a young Chinese American woman who goes back to see her grandmother, who lives in China, who is diagnosed with cancer, but the whole family doesn't tell her that she has cancer. And so it's they like decide to lie. They, they decide, decide to, to lie. lie. They decide to lie. And it's crazy that the premise, you know, if you haven't listeners, if you haven't seen it, sounds super dark. And yet it is so tender and so full of life and love. And it just like watching it makes me feel so grateful for family. Like that's number one also just makes me think about these these cultural moments where you're trying to negotiate this one part of your life with this other part of your life. And like, where do those things meet? The film has resonance, I think, especially for uh, communities of color, I think, especially for anyone who has been an immigrant. It just, it touches on so many complicated things and does it with such a light and and authentic touch. We say authentic all the time, but it's, that's it. It's authentic. Oh, Savage, help me. Am I going to be okay? Am I going to be okay I'm not sure if you're going to be okay. I was, I was trying, I was thinking, maybe I should jump in here, but you seemed so enwrapped in, in, uh, in, in by uh, this, uh, no, this movie. I need you. I, just, like, I need you. Yeah. I need you. I, I, I'm going to really, I, I'm going to lean on you during okay. this interview. So yeah, I mean, just I think it's, it's, the thing that's so interesting about the movie is like, it's based on Lulu's real life and it you know it's a, a movie that showcases different cultures and is super approachable and you know this idea that in this in this eastern culture that the right thing for somebody who has cancer is to see everybody but not let them even know that they have cancer because that's like almost too tragic and too sad and so it's a, a world a view into a world that like i had not experienced and yet like you know, it makes you think about your own life and death and family, as you're saying. And I think that's why it's like such a powerful movie. It's also super cool. Lulu is like, you know, a young filmmaker. Like she's, this is her second feature length film. And yeah. obviously I knew her before she made it. So no big deal. NBD. NBD. I remember when Lulu was just getting started and thinking about, getting into film and to see how far she's come. It's been absolutely incredible. I mean, this movie premiered at Sundance. Lulu was listed as one of the top 10 directors to watch in 2019 by Variety. There was Aquafina, the lead was like, she transcended through this role from like musician into actress and won the Golden Globe, I think. Isn't that right? For sure she did. Yeah. For sure. For for best actress. And so, yeah, it was just like crazy to see it happen. And I'm super pumped to catch up with her because we really haven't talked since since back in the day. Since, you know, 
since I was probably 23 years old, and now I'm 36. (laughs) You do the math, listeners. We're taking it back. We're hopping into the time machine. (laughs) Here we go. Let's do it. Uh, Lulu, how are you? It's so good to see you. It's been so long. I'm good. I know. It's been forever. Thanks for doing this, and thanks for reaching out. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. A lot a lot has happened since I last saw you. And I think probably, I'm trying to, I was trying to figure out the last time I saw you, but it was like right around when Wistia began, so like 2005, 2006. And you, I, I met you because you were actually Brendan's roommate for a summer, right? Yes, in Beacon Hill in Boston. Um, it was a it was a very fun summer. I think he like stayed on an air mattress or something. I can't remember now. I think he yeah he stayed on an air mattress. And I remember coming up and helping him move in. And I met this girl, and she was like doing all this filmmaking stuff and doing all these shorts. And that was also what I was trying to do back then. And I was like, how is she? Why was she doing so much stuff? What is <laughs> happening? Do what do you remember from that time? I remember working at the coffee shop across the street. Panificio? Panificios, yeah. Yeah, it was a fun time. I guess everything looks better, you know, in retrospect. Like, you kind of romanticize things, whereas I'm sure in the moment I was really stressed out and just had no idea what my future was going to be and how I was actually going to be a filmmaker. But, you know, now I look back on it and I'm nostalgic for it because I just remember it feeling so free, like my whole future was ahead of me. And I remember my parents being really upset that I was just uh, so I had just turned down law school. I gotten into law school and decided I wasn't going to go, even though I took the LSATs and got into law school on a full ride uh, on a full scholarship. I just um, decided that wasn't what I wanted to do and wanted to be a filmmaker. So I moved into this random little apartment uh, in Beacon Hill because I just wanted to work at a coffee shop and figure it out. And my parents were like, what are you doing? That's wild. So I met you basically exactly at the beginning of your filmmaking journey. Like you had, you had decided to turn that down, decide you want to do it. And how did you, I mean, obviously that's an emotional decision to make, like you feel it in your gut, but like, how did you, how did that feel? I mean, obviously you are made in the farewell, which is like an incredible film. I just watched it again the other night and I want to talk to you about it, but it's like so clear now that you're a successful filmmaker, but like to think back on that moment, what did that feel like to actually follow your passion? Uh, It was really exciting but scary and very naive i think you know and i look back and i think about quite often how the naivete both helped me and hurt me you know and i i think that being naive allowed me to just keep going um and pursue this thing in a really not logical rational way but at the same time if you think about this industry and this art form, there is no rational way to pursue it. There's, it's not, they're like, there's a clear path. It's not even rational who quote unquote makes it and who doesn't, you know, I don't think it's entirely based on talent. Um, Yeah. And it's so much of it is luck and timing. And so it, it's just wild, you know, like there's no way to predict what, 
can happen. Uh, so I think the naivete helped because if I knew the things I know now and how long it would really take, I'm not sure that I would have pursued it in the same sort of carefree way. It's so funny you say that because Brenda and I talk about all the time, like starting Wistia, we were just so naive and like, you know, we thought we would do it for six months and then we would be rich. Like that was literally yeah. what we think, like we're going to do this for six months and then we're going to be rich and it's going to be amazing. We're going to tell no one that we ever did it. And like when I think we were probably like six or seven years into the business and there was, you know, eight people on the team, I was like, oh man, if you had told me it would take this long. I would never have done it. And it's been 14 years, right? But like, it just, it ended up being like an enjoyable ride. But the, I, I think often also about like how being naive allows you to try things yeah, and do things and have no idea how complicated or hard or how much luck is involved. It's like a super skill. And then once you know it, it's like, holy crap, like how am I supposed to do this again? Or what, I feel like it changes, at least for me, totally differently about how I think about like future, taking on future challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And on some level, I don't want to lose that naivete and that sort of just like fear, right? Of like, I, or, you know, the ignorance of like, I have no idea how to do this thing. Cool. For that reason, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to go try it because I think it keeps you young. It keeps you inventive. It keeps you on your toes. And I think the worst thing for me is to go like, all right, well, now I know how to do this thing. Let me just repeat it again and again. And so what did it tell, tell me a little bit, I know you've told this story before, but I think in this context, it's like very interesting. So you went out and you decided not to go to law school. You decided to be a filmmaker. You started making some short films and you got yourself to making posthumous. What, how did that, how did you make that leap to making your first feature film? And then what did that actually feel like? You know, I think the way I got to my first feature film was sort of a lot of luck, a lot of timing. I And also just I had learned this lesson by working on sets that, you know, I was never going to be a filmmaker by working in, quote unquote, working in the industry. You know, I just um, saw too many people become filmmaker adjacent in hopes of being a filmmaker. And it's sort of like no matter how close you get to other directors, you're not going to direct a movie until you direct a movie. That's just the fact of it. And, and that leap is never going to get less scary, no matter how close you get to other people who do it. So I realized working on sets that I needed to go write a script. So I went off and did that, but mostly with the help of my boss who fired me. Um, I was working on... <laughs> I was working on this production, um, Pineapple Express, and that was the second big studio film set that I would, had been working on since I moved out to LA. And it's funny because I just did my film independent keynote with Judd Apatel, who was the lead producer on that film. And so we were laughing about that. How And I said how you know, I got fired, not by him, by another producer on that film. But yeah, I got, I got fired. And I thought, oh my God, my, you know, path in this industry is over. Like, I'm never going to work again, like this whole thing. And he was like, being fired is a badge of honor. You know, that's like, if you talk to anybody who's made it in this town, like they've been fired at one point. And it's what you do with that, that, um, you know, 
like defines your path. It's not the actual like failure or the the being the, the being fired. So uh, so I went and made posthumous. And I guess the path there was also like, I just started writing scripts, not knowing who was going to finance it and how I was going to set up my first feature. But I say so much of it was luck and timing because I was interning for a producer at the time. And another woman from Switzerland was also interning. So it was the summer where we were just like stuck in this producer's basement helping to like organize scripts and whatever. And she, that, that woman had read one of my scripts and said, Oh, I really like your writing. I'm from Switzerland. I've never made movies, but it's my dream. I, she was in marketing in Switzerland and had moved to LA to pursue her dream of making movies. And so, um, she's like, well, you know, I, I need to get a visa to stay in this country. Do you want to be my partner? And like, we'll start a production (laughs) company. And I was like, great like nobody else wow. that's like a path forward we became friends you know we went to ikea together i love ikea and so we just on our like trip to ikea became <laughs> friends and decided to become partners and again it was like super naive because you know she's she's about a decade older than me and so at the time i was like who is this swiss lady yeah. who's never made anything in hollywood yeah <laughs> but we just became friends on this fortuitous trip to ikea which eventually led to us starting a company <laughs> doing a bunch of short like branded content things and then eventually her just saying I want to make movies. You want to make movies. We've never done it before, but who cares? Um, you know, I'm going to take some of my money, my inheritance, um, and I'm going to finance this film and you'll direct it and I'll produce it. And, uh, what do you say? And I was like, great. What do we want to make? And yeah, she sounds really, good. Why wouldn't I do that? <laughs> why wouldn't we? Right. And she's like, well, I really like screwball romantic comedies and, um, I miss those, you know, they don't really get made anymore. And so I was like, I love those too. I can pitch some ideas. So that's kind of how it started. And I pitched the idea for Posthumous and it started, the idea for it was like, well, she's like, I can only afford to pay like a hundred thousand dollars for this movie. So we've got to keep it really small and minimal. And then the film just kind of spiraled, like as the idea developed and we traveled, uh, we went to Berlin, which is where the film was shot. We started casting and when I say casting, it was literally like, okay, wh- well, we have a script that we like. What's the next step? Actors. That's how we can raise more money. Great. How do we get an actor? Well, I have a friend who knows a casting director. Maybe he can call that person. <laughs> cool. <laughs> oh, well, we can't afford this person. What if we only cast two of the le- leads and like we can only afford this amount of money? Will you just make phone calls for us? Um, Sure. You know, that's kind of how it like started. And then we got to Britt Marling and even the casting director, when Britt actually responded was like, is this a real movie? Cause like I've got CAA and her lawyer and all these people on the phone. And we're like, you've been casting this movie for us for months. And now you want to know if it's a real movie. He didn't wow. know what it was, you know, at the time. And and then we, when we got Brit's attention, he was like panicked because he's like, "Well, now we actually have to like, like put a mon- like money in an account and all this stuff." And like, this is like real now, yeah, it's, yeah. And he like was like, "This is not just some like favor that I'm doing for friends." 
you know, for like a couple thousand bucks anymore. Like my name's going to be attached and it's my reputation on the line. So um, that's kind of, you know, how things got snowballed, I guess. And, and it just went and it was a much bigger project than I, any of us anticipated. So you, yeah. So it seems like you basically realized on set, like that, like you're not, there's no way that you're going to be a filmmaker by like trying to get close to the filmmakers on those sets and then, you know, willed it into being right. Like you took a bunch of risks and willed it, willed this into being. Yeah. And I find some of it is like, it, it is willful ignorance as well, because I was often in the back of my mind, of course, I'm like, is this really going to happen? How yeah. are we going to finance this movie now that it's set in Berlin? It's no longer one location, like in a room in a you know, all like taking place in like one, like one gallery. I'm pretty sure Britt Marling alone is going to her fee is going to be more than the entire budget of the film. How are we going to work? But I just chose <laughs> to ignore all those questions. And I just kept like, you know, in a way being like, all right, so this is what we need to do. How much money do we need to raise? What's the next step? What's the next step? You know, I think that for me, and this has always been the case, if I focus too much on all the unknowns and the fears and, and this, like, it's too big, right? You're like, this is yeah. never going to happen. But instead, if I focus on what's the immediate next step that I can do, what are the things that I can actually do right now or tomorrow to, to push it forward? it'll eventually get to where it's going to get to, even if it means that it falls apart. And there's a moment of reckoning where you go, okay, this can't happen. But until we reach that point, I'm just going to keep pushing the ball forward. Well, it just, it just strikes me. It's so similar to like an entrepreneurial journey, which is like, you know what I think about all the time, but like tackling a really big thing and having no idea how you're going to get there. And then, but the secret is like breaking it into pieces and finding a way to stay motivated and finding a way to take risks and trust your instincts such that you, you know, you don't regret the decisions you make. So that is, that is awesome. And I did not know that story. Um, Sylvie, also you're being awfully quiet over there. Are yeah. you okay? <laughs> I'm quiet. I'm quiet. Can you hear me? Yeah. Am I, okay. My internet keeps freezing. That's not why I'm quiet. I'm just, I'm starstruck a little. I'm a big fan. So I'm letting, I'm letting you take the lead, <laughs> Savage. Okay. <laughs> you keep going. Okay. You're doing great. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing great. Pivoting, pivoting to The Farewell. So um, The Farewell came out in 2019. Incredible film. Um, dealing with so many important topics. Dealing with race, identity, the immigrant experience. You won so many awards. Um, Aquafina won awards. I watched the film then. I watched it again two nights ago and was struck by just like the balance of tragedy and comedy in the film like you know you're like tearing up and mm. um and laughing at the same moment and like having empathy for such a complicated situation how'd you do that mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah break break that down for us <laughs> yeah what how how did you do that well i think that was the big thing that i had learned from posthumous was that um you know everyone talks about finding your voice and so my voice like, what does that mean? Right. That was the question I asked in like the four or five years between posthumous and the farewell was that, you know, first of all, posthumous went nowhere. Like it came and it went and we had a really difficult time because as naive as we were in making the film, you can't, we had no relationships with anybody. We didn't know, even know when to submit 
to festivals. Um, and so we just messed up that whole process and the film came and it didn't give me this massive career that I hoped it would. And so I started thinking, okay, well, like I know how to make a film now. Like I know how to like construct it together. Like I know what, what the process more or less looks like casting, what a crew is, you know, that you have to rent camera equipment, all of that, right. You put it together. But I was thinking like, well, what is my voice in this industry? You know, what are the kind of stories that I want to tell? What am I good at? And that balance of pathos and humor is kind of what I came to was like, I, I love things that make you laugh and cry literally at the same time because I find that that's what life is you know and that's so much of how my family makes me feel is even in the midst of the most tragic things they might say something really sharp and witty and inappropriate but like hilarious and so, and I think that's how we survive like that's one of the qualities I really appreciate about my family because they said you know like, you know, having a sense of humor means having perspective to, to see the, a little bit outside of this, like, narrow thinking of tragedy. Um, and it's, it's what it allows you to, um, to, to move past tragedy, move past anything rather than succumbing to, to the grief. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I, I'm so glad that that translated for you because I worked really hard on figuring out how to communicate the humor. And one of the ways I guess is like, I didn't necessarily put the humor on the page. Like some people who can see the situation being funny, they saw it, but it wasn't like jokes were jumping off the page. It wasn't like people were falling over. And so sometimes people would read the script and be like, Oh, I thought it would be funnier. Can you make it funnier? And I had to be like, it's going to be funny. You just got to trust me. And that's where like, the writer director comes in where, because I'm the person taking it to the screen, I don't have to like force the humor on the page. Uh, it can be a lot more subtle. So it's just interesting. Cause when you're describing that, I can see what you mean in the film in that it doesn't, there's not jokes. It's like, it's a situation. It's a look, it's a glance. It's, um, you know, uh, the angle from the camera, like it's, it's all these different things that make you laugh when there's something like really sad happening. Yeah. But I guess the thing that I'm also wondering about is like, you know, you, you had to basically to make these movies, to make the farewell, like you need an organization of people to work together to enact a vision. Yeah. Then you have to have a vision that you're confident you can communicate to the world through human beings, which is like pretty hard. Right. Like, and so how do you know that you could do that? I mean, when you decided to do this and you had turned down, you know, going to law school, did you just know that inside of you could, you could do that? Did, was like one feature film enough? Cause I've seen, I've seen a lot of directors who have made a lot of feature films and never seemed to figure it out. So how, how do you like, how, how did you get there? You know, I, I didn't know for sure. I don't know that you can ever really know. Um, you can only like do the best that you can with, each project. But I guess for me, like I grew up as a classically trained pianist. And so I knew in a way that, you know, like I didn't love piano. I never wanted to be a classical like concert pianist. And yet, because I practiced an hour every day for like 20 years, I got really, really good at it. 
So it just showed me that if you put your time and energy into anything, then you get better at it. Like it's inevitable, but you have to work and you have to know what your strengths and what your weaknesses are. And you have to be willing to look at what your weaknesses are and work to improve that rather than just having an ego about it. And it's not personal. It's just sort of like I have, like I was born with smaller hands. And so I'm never going to play list the way that it was written by list but I love list. So is there a way to, uh, you know, not change the piece necessarily, like keep the integrity of the piece, but adapt it for my hands and my piano teacher, this woman named Peggy Irwin, rest in peace. She was so wonderful because she's like, you can't let those shortcomings stop you because, and she showed me other pianists who had small hands and how they were so badass because instead of doing the octave with this hand, they like, you know, like accommodated with the right hand and all this stuff. And, and, and you don't hear it. Like all you hear is the emotion of it. You're not like going, Oh, she's missing a note in there or whatever. So in the same way, you know, after I made posthumous, I knew that I come from a writing background and not from a visual background. I took photography classes, but I never went to film school. I didn't grow up with parents who gave me a super eight camera and were like, you know, cinema in a way is a very privileged art, right? Because it's not for the people watching it, but it, the people making it is, it's, it, there's a very small circle of people who are given that privilege to take millions of dollars and go make a film. So I just try not to let those things stop me. And I try to, you know, I start watching more films, figure out what I liked about them, the kinds of humor that I liked in different films and then looked at how they were conveying that particular brand of humor. And so like, and I also looked at what I didn't want to do. I was like, okay, I don't want this to be a broad comedy. I don't want it to be another film that like specifically fits a genre. I actually want to break out of those molds of like genre and, you know, it being like an ethnic family comedy. What do people expect and how do I and how do I go against those expectations so yeah it just took a lot of um, research and I think the one thing that comes really naturally to me that I knew I would have no issue with was casting because I just have a sense of, of casting like if the person makes me laugh then that works you know like there's certain faces that make me laugh there's certain dynamics between people that when I improvise with them a little bit, I'm like, okay, this is going to work. This is great. And I'm, I can just trust these actors to do their job. The part that I needed to work on more was finding the right cinematographer who could speak the language that I was trying to speak cinematically and sort of elevate the film and give it a, its own cinematic language rather than being like, all right, just keep the camera out of the way and let the actors do their job. Because I actually think the juxtaposition of the camera like you were saying with the framing and all of that with the performances is where the humor comes from. Cause I always say like my actors don't know that like human beings, my actors don't know that they're in a comedy like they, and that sometimes that's the funniest thing is they think they're in like the world's biggest drama, but something that you're doing with the camera gives you the context that like that person thinks they're in a drama and everyone else is like, okay. And that's just about juxtaposition, right? Like what's happening on this part of the scene versus, or this part of the frame versus what's happening on the other side of the frame. And is that like, I read somewhere that you're inspired by force majeure. Is that mm -hmm. like kind of that vibe? 
For sure. Yeah. Um, I love force majeure. And I remember an interview where Ruben Ostlund said that, like referred to it as a, a marital thriller. And I thought that was hilarious. Um, so, you know, like everyone is expecting sort of like a broad lighthearted comedy about grandma and granddaughter. You think about anything revolving grandmas, right. And it's going to be like, cookies and warmth and lots of close-ups and handheld. And I was like, no, because if you know my grandma, like part of what's so funny is that she's so strong and she's going to demand to like run the whole show. And then that's funny because, I mean, it's not funny. It is funny, but it's also dark because she doesn't know that she's sick and everyone's trying to protect her. And she's just like, get the fuck off me. Stop protecting me. What are you doing? I got to go to the thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> she's not helpless at all yeah no that's that's so cool and it is cool to hear you walk through like that thinking around the camera placement and the fact that the you know the actors don't know that they're in a comedy because it does make it funnier i i feel like that other uh a ruben Austin movie the square did you see yeah. that uh-huh yeah did you like it i did i love all his films i'm just a big okay. fan of his brain his he's such a great mind when i saw that in the theater i was like cry laughing and yeah. I was, my friends were like really embarrassed because a lot of people did not, I think, know what they were walking into. And they're just like silently watching this, like an art house movie theater. And I was just like in tears. It's so fun. His new movie, by the way, has the best title I've ever heard. I mean, the, the title alone makes me laugh in the middle of my sleep. What is it? It's called The Triangle of Sadness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... And it's about like a supermodel and I mean, uh, stuck on an island. Um, yeah, it's called Triangle of, Sad- <laughs> Triangle of Sadness. Uh, I just can't wait. That's, That's like awesome. the whole pandemic. It's the Triangle of Sadness. That's it. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And this is a bit of a side, but you know, we're all stuck at home. What are you watching now? What's bringing you joy? Like what, what's, and what's, what's not, what are you watching? Cause it doesn't bring you joy. Um, it's really embarrassing to say, but I've had a hard time like watching anything really serious. Like I would love to say that I'm catching up on criterion collection. Um, <laughs> we all want to say that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what I thought I would be doing, but um, I was like, it's going to be a great opportunity to catch up on all these books and movies, but it's just so intense and I'm in development on so many projects. And it's like a lot where I have to be productive still in this time. And cause I owe scripts to different people. So I am watching a lot of, frivolous things at night because it keeps taking it's floor is lava i haven't seen that but we've been on um we've been on a survivor binge because i've Mm. never my partner barry jenkins who's also a filmmaker neither one of us have seen survivor like any of it any of it so we like didn't understand the hype wait did you see season one? Did you watch season one? Yeah, did you watch yeah, season so one? Yeah, so we went back. So the way that it got started was that <laughs> um, we were having socially distanced um, drinks, socially distanced drinks at my agent's house. And he also represents Mike White, who was on a season of Survivor. I believe it was season 37. And we were just like, wait, but you're like 
a comedian, director, writer, like, wh- why did you do Survivor? And he's like, well, I also did Amazing Race and like all this. And we're like, this is crazy. Uh, <laughs> we have to watch this. So we just started, we were like, let's watch Mike on Survivor. And then we got hooked. We, then we went on this rabbit hole where we went and watched season one. And we were like, oh, wow, it's so different. And then we started jumping around. We've now seen like five or six different seasons. And then we had to take a break from that. And now we're watching 90 Day Fiance. Nice. Boy. Yes. <laughs> Season one, I, I watched that live. I just have to say, I watched that live. I cannot imagine that, watching that live. Oh, my gosh. Like, wasn't her name Sue? Sue was like the villain mm-hmm. of the season. And I just remember that one speech she gave at the end when she was like, if you were lying by the side of the road, she's like really like giving Kelly. She's like, yes, Kelly I, remember, have it. I, remember I remember this. this. Very distinctly. I totally remember this. <laughs> and I used to just like, I don't know. I like got really uh, attached to that speech and would just kind of like recite it. And my mom would be like, <laughs> cool it. And I'd be like, I was such a right. brutal moment. <laughs> yes. I remember that. Cause they were like friends in the beginning and you were just like, Oh man. Yeah. They had an alliance. That was the first alliance, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, I and I'll so. tell you what, you know, speaking of talking too loudly, that this is one of the subjects that we in this household have been talking too loudly about because I actually think Survivor sort of it represents so much of society. It is a, yes, it's, is it extreme? It's reality TV and they're under extreme circumstances. But the reason it's so popular is that it really reveals a lot about human nature and the this idea of like packs and alliances and tribalism and the way that people like go back to their original tribe or don't is so fascinating and there's no other season that represents i mean i haven't seen all the seasons so i can't speak but i for for every season but the one of the seasons that does this that really like reveals what's going on in our society so well is um season 13 where they split up the tribes by race which First of all, would never happen in 2020. Whoa. Yeah. Just blew my Whoa. mind. Yeah. I got to watch it. You don't, you haven't seen this one. Okay. It's season 13. I haven't seen 13. No. Literally four tribes called Asian American. No, I, it's, I don't even, it's, it's just a, the Asian tribe, the African American tribe, the Caucasian tribe and the Hispanic tribe. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It's it's so fascinating and I don't want to give anything away, but it's like we could not stop watching because it's so messed up and it really does reveal like how race dynamic cuz okay, I'll just say this, like the people of color were not seeing themselves by race. They were not seeing it like by as like we're people of color and like we're being backstabbed because these are white people and we're people of color. And we like, whereas like it was apparent what was happening and the people of color were just not seeing it. And they were often so much harder on other people of color than they were on the white people. And it's just, um, it's a real, I wish that somebody would write like a dissertation on season 13 of survivor and how it extends to, you know, our current like issues in society. Well, it's just, it's so wild too that like, when did that season come out? Like it was probably, you know, t- 2010 or something. Like it was mm-hmm. very recent 
that and that what you're describing I'm like that should not be on TV like it just doesn't like that set up everything about that just yeah. seems so wrong and yet like it, it's on the one hand I feel good that it feels wrong because like at least we're progressing like um, but also just so t- like kind of terrifying crazy that it's yeah. that recent yeah and, and, 2006 yeah. I just googled it but yeah it's like it right kind of to your point it's like holy moly, that is a very fraught premise. And at the same time is like, is this the mirror that we need to be looking at? Like, it, it exactly. sounds like it's holding up like a pretty real mirror. Exactly. And I think the biggest problem with it was that the producers decided to create this premise, which is fraught. Um, but it is a mirror, but then they don't talk about it. It's like, okay, we're going to have this premise where the tribes are break, broken up by race, but then they're like, oh crap, we've gotten ourselves in really deep and we're just not going to ever mention race again. And so it's like, h- how are we not talking about what's happening in relation to race? And why is it now suddenly like it could be anything? It's like, don't you understand that this is happening because they are white, because you are not like... And yet nobody is saying that. And that was the most frustrating part where you're like, why are you holding this person to these standards and that person to those standards? And it's one of the things that we wish Jeff, the host, would actually have like pointed out and force people to address because that would have been way more interesting. But I'm sure, you know, it's network television. In 2006, they were like, all right, this is getting controversial. Let's just back off. <laughs> well, isn't also, isn't wasn't Mark... Burnett, one of the producers mm-hmm. or the lead producer who's yeah. also the apprentice. Yeah. So like, I mean, if you think about that, that's at least where my connection goes to is like, you know, you think about that and like what was happening there with Trump and it's just like, uh, definitely very, some very problematic setups and yeah, Sylvie, the face Sylvie's making now is <laughs> representative. You can't see it, that's, but it's. That's called my barf, my barf face. She's, she's just yeah. displeased. Yeah. But on the topic of on the topic of race, though, I, I was, you know, just like looking at your Twitter in preparation for this interview. And I saw that the Academy is diversifying its membership in a pretty big way. And you are now you are now a member. Is that it seems like it's it, it's got some good. It's got some bad. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I I mean, I think it's all good because. You know, I said this during the award season um, where people were like, aren't you outraged? You know, and from there's like multiple ways of looking at it. One is, you know, awards are nobody deserves an award, right? Like people deserve to eat. People deserve to like not be murdered. Like nobody deserves awards, right? Especially not in what we do, which is already such a privileged career and job. And especially because like, it's for me, it was like, I'm so early in my career. How can I like go around already feeling in any way, like I deserve acknowledgement. Like, I'm just grateful that I got to make my film and it connected with people. You know, that being said on the flip side, it was like, all right, but these awards, however you look at them, they do have actual consequences. They do have like, real consequences in terms of like who gets jobs, right? If you get an award, you are going to be offered more 
jobs. If you get an award, like there's literally points in the contracts that we do where if you've been nominated for an Oscar, you get X amount more money, you get X amount more back end. And if you win, then you get X, X amount more money, you know? And so there is a real like connection to awards and power and money and power, right? So you can't completely dismiss what these awards represent. But at the same time, I was also like, all right, but you get an award from like a jury of your peers. That's generally the idea. And the Academy does not represent a jury of my peers. So how can I possibly be shocked that looking at the makeup of the Academy, that these people aren't going to like get, you know, the value or worth of my work. And so I think this is a step at least in correcting that, that the Academy, that the jury becomes much more representative of the world that we live in. And I think, you know, that will hopefully lead to more conversations in the Academy and just more like, um, like a better filter of what we're actually talking about when we're talking about greatness and art. Well, to me, it seems like the classic, you know, um, you, we have to lead in any, in any case, people are leading by example, whether or not they want to, right? Like the actions that organizations like the Academy, uh, take, but I often think about this as like running organizations, running companies, like you can say you're going to do something, but if you act a different way, everyone just pays attention to the action and they mimic that. And I think like, you're totally right that like, it doesn't just solve the problem, but like actually having a jury of peers that is your peers, it seems like that is much more likely to change, hopefully, like how people perceive the art. And then that will, it's a pretty large ripple effect if you think about it. Like there's only so many, so many films that could be nominated for an Oscar in any category. And just when I think about the ripple of that out to other people who want to dream or take a risk or try something like it seems like it's it's actually quite large if the actions are taken and it's also exactly in the opposite direction like when they're not taken it it just like compounds the problem absolutely and i think we we send different messages based on what we value in society um and what we quote, quote unquote, like worship, like, because I think that especially Hollywood is such like a it's 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 a town and it's industry built so much on worship. And we do have to question, like, why do we tend to elevate uh, films that are about war that, you know, are about winners versus losers? you know, the good guys versus the bad guys. Like, why is greatness, like a great film that's deemed Oscar-worthy, something that has to be epic in scale rather than epic in its portrayal of humanity? You know, and and usually has a lot of visual effects and, you know, all of that stuff. And so I think it's very rare that we get, like, in 2016 that a movie like Moonlight wins. But, you know, that sent a huge message to the <laughs> to so many um, filmmakers of going, oh, my God, like, a really personal I'm, story. I, I just have to tell the audience I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm, I'm raising the roof for Moonlight. That's yes, why we laugh. <laughs> You're raising, you're punching, you're yes, punching the air. I keep forgetting that, <laughs> the that there's no video, but yes, exactly. I know, because like you and I both kind of laughed because I was doing that dumb thing with my hands. Then I was like, we're laughing 
because of good things, listeners. Yeah. We love Moonlight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's um it's a message to so many artists and filmmakers that you can do I mean that film was made for what like 1.3 like really really small budget right and so for it to travel that far and to be an Oscar winning film that year it says to people that like you know what is considered an Oscar worthy film what is considered an important film is 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 not just what we've seen in the past and that your personal stories are important and that it can translate to a a wider audience um and yeah and so it's really hopeful that there maybe there is some overlap between indie quote-unquote indie world and then like and mainstream hollywood of course you know that all went the other direction after that year and it also reflects the politics and the greater, you know, landscape of this country, blah, 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 blah. But still, I still think <laughs> it's meaningful because it's set in history. It's the cloud, but it's, yeah, I think uh, maybe what I'm, what I'm hearing you say and is maybe tell me if I'm wrong. It's like, it's like the two steps forward, one step back of like progress, which is like, you know, we make progress and then there's a reaction. We make progress as a reaction, which is like, at least it's, hopeful that we're going in the right direction. I think we are. Is that right? Yes. Is that what you mean? Yes. So one other question, which is one of the things on my mind is like, you know, when this, when this pandemic began, I thought we were going to be at home for like mm-hmm. six weeks. Like I thought we were going to do what these European countries mm-hmm. have done and like actually like crush this thing and get back to normal. And like, we're not obviously. And the long, the longer it goes on, the more I feel like it's going to change stuff. And, I guess a question for you is like, you're spending a lot of your time writing. You're spending a lot of time thinking about what stories to tell. Like, do you think there's going to be a change in terms of what stories resonate after this? Like when we, and you can go back to production, go make things and put them back into the world. Do you think there will be a change because of this? Do you think it'll be a blip? Like, what do you, what do you think? Uh, I really don't know. I, it's harder. It's funny. I've have, I have much more insights on other industries than I do on my own. Maybe just cause I'm in the middle and I'm in the midst of the weeds. So I can't see very clearly. I have no idea how the pandemic is going to ultimately affect the industry. And I'm very sad about it all, particularly because theatrical has completely disappeared this year with the pandemic. And um, I don't know if, if it, if we're going to come out on the other end and go, oh no, we really miss, we really miss theatrical. We really need theaters and people are going to just be so hungry for that kind of a communal experience that, you know, suddenly it's going to force a revival of small art house theaters. That would be amazing. Or if it's going to go the other direction where people go, you know what, we really don't need it. You know, we we had a whole year where we saw we saw films, you know, through streaming platforms, and that's just fine. Uh, I and I hope that that's not the way that it goes because it certainly uh, means a lot less to me. Like I I don't think it's the same wherever you watch a film. Like I miss having experiences. I miss being able to say, oh, I watched that. I remember watching that film on this particular night with these particular people, and then we had dinner after we talked, you know, like that whole thing, it's like everything just gets 
muted when it's all the same everywhere. Yeah. No, I mean, I hope I hope we go back to theaters too. I mean, I, I miss the communal experience very much. You know, I, I read somewhere, I'm not sure this is true, but that like after the flu pandemic in 1918, one of the reasons the 20s was called the Roaring 20s was because people were like dying to get back out and connect mm. with each other. Like they appreciated it more than ever. And I am hopeful that happens. And yeah, I mean, it's funny, even as you were saying that, like, you know, I'm thinking about the square when I was laugh crying and then my friend lost his phone in the seat. We had to go back and like look forever to find this thing. Um, and all the other experiences I've had like that and how it is quite different to, you know, be on Apple TV and rent a movie and, you know, then have some people on their phones. It's not the same. Exactly. Two things I wanted to say. One savage loved that question. Very podcasty into it. Two is I miss going to the movies so much, so so much because you're you're a hundred percent right. It's it's an experience that goes beyond what you're seeing on the screen, and oh my god, that dog! We're now looking. This is this is an experience on the screen. We are looking at a beautiful doggy. It was Chauncey. His name is Chauncey Chauncey Wong Jenkins. <laughs> Chauncey Wong Jenkins. Hello. Oh, they, and Cha- Chauncey joined you during the during quarantine, right? Yeah, he's only been with us for about a month now. You're brand new. You're brand new. Sorry, I interrupted your. No, no. I, th- a dog. A dog is takes precedent. Let's just be honest here. <laughs> but the view. Uh, but the listeners can't see the dog, so they're just like, what? You're right. They're going to be hungry. They're going to be hungry. But we only have we only have Lulu for a few more minutes. I think we should wrap up, and then if there's anything we want to go back to, that sounds great. I mean, I always I always want you to spill the tea on Barry. Always, like we've had that discussion before. But you guys are very cute on your social media channels. Um, Just had to say that. Big fan. Big fan of the power couple. Thank you. Chauncey is a fan too. (laughs) he is he is the result of our being partnered together uh quarantined together wait one more thing lulu as a closing thought this was like i i just realized can you do you remember what savage used to look like back in the day like similar to what he looks like now similar i feel like you've lost some weight is that right he has been working out that's right. Yeah. And maybe did you have more facial hair back then? I mean, something about the facial hair was a little different back then. No? Yeah, no facial hair back then, more weight. No, you look the same. You look pretty much the same. I mean, <laughs> you know, like you look, yeah, you look fit. I, but other than that, I would say you look pretty much the same. I just love that you guys knew each other when you were like basically babies. And and starting, starting <laughs> yeah. your journeys. Didn't I see you at a, a Rhode Island Film Festival or something like some kind of a premiere? Do you remember? I can't remember now if it was. Yes. Oh, you yeah. came. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right to the premiere of Buddy, the film yeah, that I worked on. That's what it was. Yes, yes, yes. I can't believe you came to that. That's crazy. Yeah, in the Columbus Theater in, in Providence. Yeah, but I remember thinking. Wow, this guy's a real filmmaker with like a film in a in a in a film in a real film festival. 
So like whatever you were thinking about me, I was thinking that of you. I was like, how do I do that? How do I get my film to Rhode Island <laughs> or make a film? That goes well, that's, it's so funny. Cause like, yeah, that's what's, it's so funny. Cause like what you were saying about being close to um, a director and thinking you have to do your own thing and like going a different direction. Like it was like, for me, that movie was like an amazing experience and then not getting distribution and realizing like we didn't get distribution because the head of docs at HBO at the time who looked at it and was like, Oh, this is such a great movie. Um, but they're like, Oh, it's, it's about a politician. So we did a political thing last year. Like we're kind of done. And I remember thinking like, Whoa, I've spent a few years on this and the filmmaker I worked with, she spent years and years and like for your dream to be given up like in one day like that, I, I couldn't believe it. And so it was like when Brennan and I started talking about like building a company, I was like, I like that because we can be in control. Like I like that because like, and ex- everything you said about just being crazy naive is like why it made sense. But yeah, there was a long, that was a, that was a while ago, but it's, it's, it's so cool to see how far you've come. And I also love that like, this is the beginning for you. And I, I can't wait to see what comes next, uh, what new films come out, and the uh, what the power couple does. Thank I'm you. Raising the roof again. <laughs> oh God. Thank you. Well, this <laughs> the power couple. I'll have you know was uh, cleaning off um, a puppy this morning. We were giving him a shower in the yard with the hose because he ate stuff off the table last night that he wasn't, and so he was kind of having. Mm. accidents all morning we were like all right we just need to wash this guy so you know that's kind of the the extent of our power these days if it gives you any sense we were like imagine if imagine if like the tabloids could see us they were like award-winning directors at home cleaning shitty puppy literally (laughs) shit off their puppy (laughs) (laughs) That's oh, that's good. That's good that quarantine is, content right there. You know, yeah. it's lighthearted. It's uh, it, it's comedy. <laughs> it's people. comedy and tragedy to bring it full circle. It's both. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. But this was a blast. Thank you. Yes, it was yes. so much fun. Thank you for distracting me from writing for a little bit. It's great to see you guys. Yeah, thank you. This was super fun, and uh, I'll see you soon. Yeah, see you soon. Okay, so Sylvia, are you okay? I was so <laughs> quiet in the beginning. <laughs> you just like I saw this look on your face of like, oh my gosh. Like I feel like she exceeded your expectations and you were just like just stuck in time. You're just frozen. I was I was a little well, I was literally and figuratively frozen because I had some tech issues. Sorry, listeners. Just Sorry, a couple, listeners. Yeah. There were some tech issues, um, but I, I was, I was starstruck a little bit. It, it's, it, yeah, I was starstruck. Um, I felt like I warmed up in the middle. Like I was, I was like, you did, you did, Survivor. Yeah. I know about Survivor, and uh, you know, we, we, we went to some cool places, and and I just, it's so funny to be friends with somebody before they're famous. Um, you, she's famous. She's famous and you knew her when she wasn't. Yeah, pretty cool. Turns out you no one ever knows as, I mean, as she said, I feel like it's like the this path 
the path that she's been on and I think the path of, you know, what I obviously won't shut up about talking about like building companies is like you just don't know what's going to work and how it's going to get there. I thought it was super interesting that with her first film that like it just kind of they decided, okay, we're going to do this without much they of a plan. They were basically like, oh, I guess in we need Ikea to- just being like, yeah, we'll make a movie. Yes. Ikea yes. is so good. And then so like, good. oh, sh- it's Ikea. All the ideas, they fit together. They fit together beautifully. You build oh, your own story after you go to Ikea. Look at you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but to say, just even like that moment when she said, well, you know, we had the casting director and Britt Marlin got interested and like, oh, is this actually happening? <laughs> that that <laughs> it's was like, crazy. It's crazy. But, I, you know, it made me think of like, it's the same thing as like, oh, you get your first customer and you're like, this is amazing. Like, oh, oh God, like, do I actually have to give them, keep taking care of them and doing something like this made it real and how that turned into, oh, the confidence to actually then make another movie like based on her life that has like, you know, clearly, oh yeah, I knew it would be funny uh, because the camera angles and all the other stuff is like pretty confident, pretty wild to get there. Um, through the experience along the way. Yeah, I mean, what when you guys were talking about sort of the the naivete or the ignorance that kind of comes with uh, pioneering something and how it's this double-edged sword of like, it allows you the room to create, but like in hindsight, you're like, ooh, maybe I would have gone about that creation a little bit differently. That, I found that really interesting. And... We, we got to meet her doggy, Chauncey, 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 Chauncey Wong Jenkins. And I got my dream, which was like getting, getting the scoop on Lulu and Barry. <laughs> I got the dream. I also. That was I, your dream. I can't believe I raised the roof twice. I raised the roof you not did. once, but twice. Twice. She, yes. she seemed okay you know, with it. I think she was into it. I think she I think she appreciated the excitement, especially um, she didn't talk about this, but we know because we got on there to get some tech stuff figured out. She had a failed sweet she green did. delivery. And you know what that could do. That can, you know, if that was me, I probably would have just walked out. I would have just said, no, I'm I you're telling me I'm not getting the this rich salad <laughs> and a carbohydrate and protein mix coming into my body right now. I, I couldn't do it. I would just be like, done. Like, I'd be in a puddle. I'm going to sleep on my desk now. Yeah. Yeah. No, she powered yeah. through. She got the sweet green. You know, everybody, everybody won in the end. Everybody was a winner. Everyone won. Yeah. My favorite part was like the, the thing's basically done. And then you, Sylvia, you're like, What's the deal with Barry? Well, you and Barry, you have to tell me right now. <laughs> that's great. That's a great interview technique. It, it worked. <laughs> then she really opened up. <laughs> the yeah. old, all right, the old expert strikes again. <laughs> well, um, that was a good one. Uh, what do you think we're going to do next time? I don't know, but tune in every other week. <laughs> for new episodes of Talking Too Loud, um, wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, we'd love if you rate and review the show. We want your feedback. We want to make the show better. We want to hear from you. And of course, you can see all the other cool content we're doing from Wistia Studios at Wistia.com. What'd you think of that transition, Look at you. Sylvia? You're a skipper. <laughs> now I'm making all the sailing jokes. Three episodes later, I'm making sailing jokes. Amazing. Killing it. 
Okay, see you soon. All right, bye. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Josh Solarski. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.